is sitting here in my living room with Sue Foley. Thank you for coming here. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, great. I want to go back to the beginning, as I always do, and I know we've talked about this before. I know you told me about how you got into the blues, but tell me how you got into music in general. Um, I got into music, I mean, I would say primarily through my father, but probably more just the environment at home because my father um, played music, uh, was a musician, uh, not professional, but he played a lot around the house, um, Celtic music, folk music. Oh, really? Yeah. So primarily Irish music and country music and sort of folk music, Clancy Brothers, uh, you know, stuff like that. And he always played like he was really into it. But just as a hobby. Yes. But it was a really um, obviously um, an obsessive hobby (laughs) because he played a lot. And so it, it was... A very traditional sort of, I mean, we're I, sort of Irish Catholic family with the kitchen being a place where music was played. And mm-hmm. I know um, in the East Coast, they have a lot of kitchen parties, uh, Kayleys or whatever they call them, right. um, where music is played. So that's kind of the environment at our house is my dad and his buddies would congregate in the kitchen and play um, Irish music. Wow. So this yeah. was, and, but this was just strictly a hobby. He never played for money. Or... He did some gigs. I think they had a band called the Gingermen, and that was just I don't know how many years that lasted. They weren't really serious about it. They they were family men, and they had you know mm-hmm. um, lives to lead and kids to raise and wives and stuff like that. So it wasn't like he wasn't going on the road or anything like that. Um, but he did play in some maybe some of the taverns around yeah I guess he did but I was kind of young because I'm the youngest child so I didn't wasn't quite aware of what he was doing just I just was very aware of it in the house that we just had a lot of music in the house and then my three older brothers um, I'm the youngest of five kids my sister's the oldest I'm the youngest and then there's three boys in the middle and the three brothers all played guitar as well oh okay so it was just you know music all over the the place the guitar was just in the house it was guitars everywhere and rock and roll blaring and uh it was the 70s so my brother's my oldest brother was really into zeppelin and cream and you know all that heavy rock and then so you picked up the guitar because of your brothers and my dad yeah pretty much and before you you stumbled upon james cotton what would you would you have been playing guitar at that point i started at 13 and i stumbled on james cotton at 15 um so at 13, um, my brother, Danny, that's our middle child, our middle child, the middle boy, um, he showed me my first co- chords, uh, C, A minor, stuff like that, and I would just practice that, and then I've lear- learned like House of the Rising Sun and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> the, the stuff that everybody learns, right. Stairway to Heaven, <laughs> you know, like the stuff that everybody learns, and then I really learned a lot from Beatles songbooks. We had Beatles songbooks, and I think they're a, a great resource. I still mm-hmm. refer people to them. I, I'm always like, if you're starting guitar, get a Beatles songbook because you know you'll learn all the chords and how they work together. And so I learned that, and I think that was really invaluable as well. And then once you came across James Cotton, then you decided the blues is the way to go. Yeah. Well, we were. You know, I had a young friend, and we were. He was really into British Invasion, and I was into punk. Like what I'm kind of punk? Like the Sex Pistols. I was in the Clash. I love the Clash. Um, Sex Pistols. Some of the mod stuff, the jam and stuff like that. I love the Who. Um, so he was into the Who and the Beatles and the early Stones. So we kind of fused our interests. And then through those bands, we discovered blues through just reading about them. And then we're like, oh, let's buy a Jimmy Reed record and see how that sounds, you know. Or Muddy Waters record. And then we listened to Muddy Waters. We're like, ooh, that's just weird, you know? <laughs> that's too weird. You hear like the Stones do a Muddy Waters song, and then you hear Muddy Waters do it. You're like, whoa, what's going on there? Right. And so it took us a while to get into it. But after seeing James Cotton, and then James Cotton came to Ottawa, and we, we saw the, we read the write up in the paper, and James Cotton had said how he, he had been, um, schooled by Sonny Boy Williamson or something and we were like oh we know Sonny Boy Williamson we should go see this guy and so uh, that was our first like interactive experience with blues music in a club that was packed 
full of adults who were partying <laughs> and we were like 15 we were like whoa what's going on here right like whoa this is crazy but you you went like right into it right? yeah after, after that i didn't stop i was obsessed after that yeah i was obsessed with blues so what did your dad think when you decided to go on the road um i didn't really go on the road until like my parents, to be honest, nobody really knew what I was up to. <laughs> Have you told them yet? Uh, they know now. <laughs> but they were like, first of all, my parents were separated. I'd lived with my mom for a while, and then I moved back with my dad. And he worked midnight shifts. So this was great for somebody who wanted to sneak out at night and go to clubs because my dad, all the other kids were out of the house, by that time, I was the only one left. Everybody had moved out. Right. So it was just me and my dad, and he would go to work at 11 o'clock at night. So I would wait till he went to work. I'd say, good night. It'd be like, <laughs> you know, yeah. 10.30, he'd, he'd leave. I'd say, good night, Dad, I'm going to bed. And then I'd, like, sneak out to the club, <laughs> borrow ID from my brother's girlfriend, who was, you know, old enough to get into his 19 or whatever. And then I'd sneak out to the clubs, take the bus downtown and go to the downstairs club in Ottawa on Rideau Street. And then I'd get home maybe at one or two. I'd go back to bed. I'd wake up for school and I'd see my dad at seven in the morning and say, hi, dad, <laughs> going to school. Wow. Uh, he never knew. No. I don't think he knows. Well, he's passed on now, so I don't think he ever knew that I did this. <laughs> so but, they didn't know anything. But at a very young age, you went on the road. Like, well, I, I moved out at 18. I finished high school, and I knew I was going to be a musician. I was already playing music, but I wasn't on the road. I moved out at 18. I moved to Vancouver, and um, that kind of shocked my family because they're just like, that was out of left field. They're like, I'm, like, I'm moving to Vancouver. <laughs> and they're like, what? <laughs> and how did, why did you choose Vancouver at that point? Um. Because at that point, I'd been in Ottawa. I kind of knew the scene in Ottawa. I knew all the musicians, and I was a little bit familiar with Toronto, but Vancouver kind of had this mystery, and uh, it was really far away, and I just thought it kind of just seemed like a big adventure. So I went to Vancouver instead. I, I figured in Canada you could go two places to, to make it. It was Vancouver or Toronto, so I don't know. I guess Vancouver kind of held this impression I'd never been out that way so and musically what was going on in Vancouver um when I got to Vancouver there was a blues jam I mean I pretty much that's how I met all the other musicians um the powder blues were out there Jack Lavin and Tom Lavin were out there and they ran the blues jam there was some good players Tim Hersey on guitar was a good player um I just kind of hung out at the blues jam and um didn't get so involved in the local scene to be honest I, I um, couldn't get a lot of traction out there actually <laughs> so I kind of just met the people and then I ended up meeting my first band um, I could I wanted to go and get a gig is what I really wanted to do is get a gig as a guitar player but uh, all the gigs were kind of sewn up and uh, so I kind of had to start my own band and I met at the blues gym I met young players who were my age I was 18 just turning 19 and so I met a couple other guys that were in my age group who had just got to town and we formed our first band that was John Penner who was with me for 10 years and and uh, Bob Grant was our first drummer from he's still out in on the west coast and then Shorty Lenoir Lauren Petkow and these guys two of these guys were from Manitoba and the Bob was from the west coast but we were all young and that was my first band, and I started booking myself, and I kind of got out of Vancouver. I really didn't stay there, yeah. And, and then, I don't know if you moved anywhere else, but then you moved to Austin, Texas. Yeah, and on the way to Austin, we got hired by Mark Hummel, um, the harmonica player mm -hmm. from, from the Bay Area, because he was touring through Alberta, and he saw us and saw a whole band, young, eager, wanted to do nothing but go on the road. We we had no ties to anything. So we were just like, yes, let's go on the road. And so he's like, I'm going to hire out this whole band <laughs> to bag me up because they just want to tour. And so we toured with him for a better part of a year. So what was that experience like? What did you think? Was this a dream come true to go on the road? or? Well, I loved going on the road then. I didn't want to do anything else. I was, that's all I wanted to do was go on the road and learn how to play. And um, yeah, it was the dream come true. And, and um, we were following our passion and, 
we were learning a lot and because we had to play so much like at the time you know most of the people from my era they remember in the prairies when there was a gig in every town that had a week-long gig Mm -hmm. like the king eddie the commercial in edmonton the king eddie in calgary the commercial in edmonton buds on broadway in saskatoon the georgia hotel in regina and then there was usually some kind of gig in winnipeg and you could do like you know that's five cities it would be five weeks of work because the gig started on monday it ended on saturday you played three sets a night six nights a week plus a saturday afternoon matinee so we did that a few times and that is so good for your playing and that opportunity isn't around anymore no it's not here so i feel sort of really fortunate that i got to play that much because i think it takes that much playing like Mm -hmm. you really have to play a lot to learn how to play um and we didn't we didn't know what we were doing i didn't even have enough songs to fill a night then i just had to write songs to fill in the night because it's three hours plus an encore six nights a week like your hands would be like bleeding (laughs) you would have no calluses left you know you'd be playing so much but that is so good for your playing and that's the best way to to really get and financially it was enough to get make a living oh yeah i mean we had our needs were simple then you know (laughs) we just wanted to get you'd make plenty of money like that actually so I, i would assume that going on the road with mark hummel was probably one of the first milestones yes can you name me some others that happened like well i mean going out with mark was really important to us because he met us in the prairies in canada but he brought us stateside to tour with him in the states which was huge for a canadian band to be able to play and live in the u.s so we actually based ourselves out of berkeley california where mark was for about a year after um the vancouver time so we stayed there and and worked out of california and sort of got familiar with that whole california i5 scene which Mm -hmm. was you know rod piazza and junior watson and and uh the guys who followed hollywood fats and all those bands, um, James Harmon, all the West Coast bands. Right. We knew all those guys. And, um, and when, you, when you saw them, I mean, these are pretty heavy hitters in the blues. Yeah. Back then, were they that? Yes. Okay, Absolutely, so. yeah, they still were, yeah. Junior, and, Junior Watson was always great. Yeah, that's you know, true. Crazy good. <laughs> yeah. And did you learn a lot from them? Like, what would have been an example of something that you might have learned from being out there? Mostly it was just osmosis, like playing on double bills with people or going to their shows and watching them. Like I never, you wouldn't get a lot of just physically sitting down with anybody Mm -hmm. and them showing you stuff. The first person who did that with me was Ronnie Earl, which was actually before I went to California, who sat down with me and actually said, you know, what do you want? Like, I'll teach you something. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So I mean, actually, Ronnie person. Earl. Yeah, Ronnie yeah. Earl was one of the first important people, actually, even before Mark Hummel, because we met Ronnie um, on our first tour across Canada as the Sufoli band. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. What is it about Ronnie Earl? I saw him a couple of years ago for the first time. I was blown away. Oh my God. Like yeah. I don't. I don't. I have. I wouldn't. I never experienced anything like that. <laughs> so it's so good to hear you say that. Because I felt the same way. We all did when we saw yeah. Ronnie. And I'll, I'll tell you the story because I will never forget. Um, this is even pre-Mark Hummel. Um, we, we were touring across Canada. We had toured the prairies a few times, like on those long tours. And then I booked us right coast to coast. I booked myself, my own band, coast to coast. They over to Halifax. There's no label. I mean, there's no record. No at this record. Point. No label. Just a cassette tape, um, and a telephone, and um, a lot of will <laughs> to do stuff, and um, and a lot of doors just opened. You know, we were we were fortunate that way. But um, so when we got into Ontario from Vancouver, we went right across the prairies, drove down through Chicago stopped in hmm. oh yeah we drove through chicago we had to go to the south side and so we drove around the south side of chicago we'd never been in the states before mm-hmm. so we drove you know instead of going winnipeg to ontario through northern ontario we went down through 
through, you know, skirted the Great right. Lakes through Chicago, went to the south side. We wanted to find Maxwell Street and, and the checkerboard lounge. <laughs> so we were just these big geeks with the band full of gear, as white as white could be. Like, you can't be any whiter and geekier than we were at the time, like <laughs> 19 and like wide eyes. And, and did you know that that it wasn't necessarily the safest place to travel? No. Okay. <laughs> we didn't know anything. We were so naive. And we were like, we have to go to the south side. We got to go to the checkerboard, you know? So we were like, okay, so we drive a van. We got a van full of gear, four really geeky squares that are looking out the window. And then I'm like, wow, this is crazy, you know? Like, there's no white people here. I was like, look, there's like no white people on the subway. It was all black. I never experienced a black neighborhood in my life. So I was like, wow. Where where did all the white people go? And I was like, no, this is exactly like the books I've been reading, you know, because blues is like a mythology. Right. It's, you know, you read the stories in the books and the story, you know, and so all of a sudden we're living the myth. We're in the middle of the mythology of it. And uh, just uh, we did go to the checkerboard and we did go to Maxwell Street. And then we said, you know what? We got to get the hell out of here. Somebody's going to kill us. <laughs> <laughs> so like we kept driving and we got to Ontario, and Glenn Smith at Pop the Gator, I don't know if you know Glenn, but he had a great club called Pop the Gator, and he had the Hoodoo Lounge first, it was the Hoodoo Lounge, and they had, and this is in um, Kitchener-Waterloo, and they used to have the, kitch- the Blues Festival, the Hoodoo Lounge, or the Blues Festival, and he actually hired us. So there was a couple of fortuitous things that happened on that tour, and that was Glenn Smith who was one of my first of people who first championed me. Another guy who first championed me was Terry Gillespie in Ottawa. was a great musician. Mm-hmm. Um, Glenn Smith was one of the first guys that really liked the band. And nobody else really seemed to give a crap about us, <laughs> to tell you the truth. We were just on the road, like, spinning our wheels. Okay, so how did that feel when, when you, I mean, to say that nobody really cared, how did that feel as a musician? Did it matter? Oh, uh, no. We were just... <laughs> doesn't care we were just like I was just so in love with learning about the music and we were so into it that we were very self-absorbed and (laughs) and the whole thing so and then I guess the reverse would be how did it feel when somebody like Glenn Smith showed interest and support it was great because it was like the first sort of person who was like giving us a stamp saying you're good because we were like we think we're good I think we're pretty Mm -hmm. good we're really into it but nobody really said anything up until that point um so glenn smith was cool and he hired us for our fest for the festival in which um we ended up going down to the club and we had a couple nights off and angela straley from austin was playing there at the club with denny freeman on guitar all these guys from austin these heavy george rains on drums and um they were playing at the hoodoo lounge and we went and sat for two nights and watched them and just I was just like freaked out. I was like, I'd never seen a woman sing blues like that or carry herself that way. I'd certainly never seen a guitar player live play like Denny Freeman. So I was, we were just like floored by the whole Austin sound. Um, And, you know, at the time, Stevie Ray was already really big and a lot of people were emulating Stevie Ray. But I was sort of curious about what else was going on in Austin. Mm -hmm. Um, So the first people we saw was Angela. and we met them, uh, we ended up playing the festival with them, and she was really nice and uh, said, you know, you should keep in touch. I run the record label. She was running Antone's Records at oh, okay. the time. So um, that was just a cool thing that happened, and, and I never thought much about it. And then um, on the same tour, we met Ronnie because we were playing in London, Ontario, and we were doing a week-long gig at um, the Fire, is it the Firehouse? I forget. I th- it was a gig that was there forever. Fire Hall, maybe? Is, sorry, London. In, in London. London. Yeah, and then there was another rock. There was two bars side by side. There was the blues bar where you played for a week. And then there was the rock bar where they had rock bands coming in and out. But on one night that week, Ronnie Earl and the broadcasters were coming through. And they had the posters up. And we were like, oh, my God. <laughs> Ronnie Earl's coming to town on Wednesday or whatever. And we're like, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. So we were like there all week waiting for them. And our gig was dead all week. You know, there's nobody at our gig. We were just playing and playing to nobody. <laughs> and we just waiting for whatever Thursday night or whatever night it was that Ronnie was coming through. And 
Um, he was coming through. He had um, Jerry Portnoy on harmonica, uh, Daryl Newlish on on um, vocals. vocals, and um, Pear Hansen on drums. Wow. I think it was a great band, and they came through. So we had been waiting all week for them, like little kids waiting for the candy shop to open. <laughs> you know, just and and then like we were staying above uh, above the club and I remember when their van pulled up and they all tumbled out of the van like musicians do at five in the afternoon going when's sound check, you know, and they tumble into the club and they're all smoking cigarettes. And we're looking from the windows up top, looking down, <laughs> going, They're here there's santa claus i know it's like we were like oh my god so we go down and like i think our bass player saw jerry portnoy (laughs) jerry portnoy is like smoking a cigarette and like it's funny because the promo pictures that they had put up for the band were like probably 10 years or 20 years old like jerry portnoy was about 20 years older than his promo picture so he looked like kind of rugged and beat up a little bit so um, our bass player, John, goes up to him and, you know, looking forward to the show tonight, you know. And, like, Jerry Portner was just like, do what you want. <laughs> like, do it. I don't give a crap. Or said something like, do what you effing well want or something like that. <laughs> and then John was just like, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so that was um, – that was interesting. Then he comes upstairs and reports to us. You know, I just saw Jerry. This is what he said. You know, we're like, oh, my God. So, and that night, we had to play at the same time as them, but our sets were staggered, so we didn't quite, um, like, we, we, we weren't sure when they were starting, so we started our show. And, of course, there's their set, their club was packed. Ours was empty. <laughs> and, and there was, like, a little um, back way to go into our club um, from the other club. So there was like a little hallway that you could go without going through the front doors. So we finished our set and we went and sat and watched Ronnie. And I will, I can honestly say I'll never be the same. I've never been the same since I saw him play. So that's how heavy that experience was for me. So when you say how, how much it affected you, it just yeah. brings that all back to me. It, I, I, I don't know what it, I can't even explain it, but I was... I was stunned. I saw him at the Pennsylvania Blues Festival two years ago, and to see him do what he did for 75 minutes to 90 minutes, it was, I don't have seen a lot of shows, yeah. but I've never seen anything like that. Like it was something else. And, and you know, other people say that that's just who he is. And Yeah, he's pretty much transformative, I think. Mm-hmm. He gets really inside the music like so deeply inside the music that it just if you're at all you know can grasp any of it it's pretty damn deep so So, but okay so as a guitar player you watch that Mm -hmm. and you think oh my god this is amazing what do you take away from it how do you digest that how do you process that well i think the the thing that struck me the first was when, and Ronnie does this probably at every show, he plays really quiet. And um, we were sitting pretty much in the front. We'd somehow snagged seats in the front. And he comes out to the audience and he kind of walks slowly out while he's playing really quiet. And it's getting quieter and quieter and quieter. And as the music's getting quieter and quieter, it's getting more intense mm-hmm. um, and more powerful. And that freaked me right out because I was like, because most guitar players, they just want to blast out. They get louder and louder. They get louder and louder and faster and faster. (laughs) And that's how they express their power. So when you see somebody actually bring it down and bring it down and bring it down and it's getting more powerful and more intense, you're like, whoa, like now what am I seeing? Like what's happening here, right? So that was the first thing about Ronnie that just freaked me right out because I was like, whoa, he can... He's going quieter and quieter. And I'm getting sucked into this deeper and deeper into his world. And uh, I was just like completely freaked out. So would you go back to your set and try that? Well, and that <laughs> the funny thing is, is we sat and watched those guys and then it was time for us to go back to play. And we went back to our club, it was empty, set up, went back up on stage and started playing. 
and um, there was nobody in our club, literally. <laughs> this is a tiny club. But lo and behold, who walks in but Ronnie, Jerry Portnoy, Daryl, the whole band walks in, sits right in the front, and they're just like, and they're not even really, they don't look happy or anything. They're just kind of <laughs> sitting there like, not smiling and so we just like were you know <laughs> messing in our pants as they said <laughs> we were just on stage like oh my god dying because these guys are like sitting right in front of us and they sat there for most of you know 20 or 30 minutes while they were taking a break smoking cigarettes and just kind of watching us and then they left before we were done to go back and do their show so when we were done our show we went back to see their show so we didn't really talk to them until after the whole thing was over. And right. then they came up and they were like really nice and um, really supportive. So that felt amazing. So we were just like on cloud nine, right? <laughs> like, and then Ronnie, they were supposed to drive. They were driving all night that night. They had to go somewhere far. And uh, they had the whole van packed up, truck packed up. And... Um, we were just kind of waiting around saying bye to them and everything and they were giving us pep talks and advice and and then Ronnie was like wait a minute go get my guitar and that's like the whole band is waiting to drive so to understand what musicians are like on the road when you have an all-night drive you don't waste time yeah, yeah. you do not you just like get the gig done and you go because an all-night drive is serious right you got it's work after doing all night after gig. playing all night and then driving all night i mean it's just a lot but he stopped everybody and he said go get my guitar so the guy the roadie had to go back into the van dig out his guitar he came back out into the club and he sat down and he plugged into my amp and he sat down in front of me and played just one-on-one -on -one. wow yeah <laughs> and i just sat there like like trying to pinch myself like the whole band was with me but he was directing it to me and said you know what do you want me to show you I was just like I didn't even know what to say I was so speechless and then you know Jared Portnoy took out some harps and Daryl Newlish sang I mean they were just <laughs> and they were just for us there was nobody else there they were just playing for us and they had to drive and but they took this time to show us something and to, to give this gift so that was very profound mm -hmm. yeah and ronnie and i have been like we always say we're soulmates we're brother and sister but we've been friends our whole career my whole career yeah he's a special person he really is and and that story proves that yeah yeah he really believes in it and every time i've seen him since it's always been familial now we're we're really close but he's always been really good about just showing playing and sharing what he knows but you've had a lot of relationships like that have you not with older blues musicians yeah nothing quite that profound i think the relationship with ronnie is just really profound um because of that basically the way it started and the way we've kept in touch over the years but clifford antone was another one that was pretty profound and he was definitely like family as well and that happened, um, you know, when he invited me to come to Austin. But so I lived at his house for a while, Clifford's house, and he showed me, you know, pretty much everything about Texas blues. And and it's it was very family because I just got back from Antone's a couple weeks ago. And, oh, that's right. And uh, it's definitely a family kind of situation, you know. Even though Clifford's passed on, I'm. But being down in Austin, how long were you down there for? Uh, almost eight years. Okay, so that must have been an amazing lesson. Uh, an amazing lesson. Yeah, lessons, lessons after lesson. Yeah. And Clifford was really good about, he was very, um, it was very important for him to make sure that the younger generation knew about the older generation and vice versa. So mm -hmm. there was that connection. So he was always into getting the young players up with the older guys. And I was lucky at the time that there was still a lot of people were alive that are passed on now, like mm -hmm. Jimmy Rogers and Snooky Pryor. And just like the regulars there, like Jimmy Rogers was there all the time. P Snooky Pryor was there all the time. You know, Pine Top lived in Austin for a long time and was at the club with James Cotton and 
Albert Collins used to come by and Buddy Guy and they were all friends and so we got to have like interactions with these guys that we wouldn't have for normally. sure I mean that's that's the history of the blues and yeah so when you look around now what do you see because it's a different landscape yeah it's really different I feel sad um that those guys are gone mm-hmm. it's really um it's really hard to get your head around that I mean they're not all gone no There's, but you know James Cotton is still here and um, Buddy Guy's still here and you know, there's a lot of great musicians still around, but a lot are gone. Um, so, and they're older. Um, I don't know. I just feel, I feel really fortunate. And then I kind of feel sad for <laughs> the younger people under us. Like, cause I'm like, God, how are you going to learn this stuff? You know? Yeah, that's for sure. You know, how does this stuff still uh, survive in a lot of, in a lot of ways? Let's talk about that. Cause at one point, few years ago we talked about the blues and you had some concerns about the future of it how do you feel now about the blues and, and where it's at um well there's still a lot of players that mm-hmm. play it and there's still a lot of festivals and blues societies and there's obviously people that want to preserve the history so i don't think it'll ever go away i think it's just it's too powerful it really is. Even the recording. So you can't, like, I never could go see Howlin' Wolf because he was already passed on when I started. But I'm still, like, completely deeply affected by Howlin' Wolf's recordings. Right. So there is that element that the recordings will live on. I mean, you can still put on an Otis Rush record and go, put your jaw on the floor <laughs> and go, oh, my God, how did he do that? Right? Like, so that is, that's forever. Like, that will be with us forever. And actually, YouTube has got some crazy stuff that I've never seen like I there's all kinds of stuff that I never saw before that are accessible on YouTube now mm-hmm. which is great like all kinds of stuff so in a way it's still out there I mean the direct transmission is a little harder to get now because there's just it's harder to get right yeah I mean the world's changed and and certain like you can't stations. sit at the feet of Albert Collins you can listen to his records and I can tell you or people can tell you how powerful he was but until you sat in front of his amp for three hours and and walked away deaf (laughs) you don't know what it was like to watch Albert Collins like you know or seeing the look in his eye when he hit that note you'd be like whoa so I'm lucky that I got to see that but there's a lot of things I didn't get to see there's people that were gone like I never saw Muddy Waters and you know so Mm-hmm. So the other thing that you did, or you've been working on, I presume it's ongoing, is guitar, sorry, women guitar players and documenting yeah. interviews with them. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the genesis of that project? Um, that started, yeah, I did. I started interviewing women in 2001. And uh, I've got about 100 interviews that I did. And then I was writing a book. That was my whole intention. And then I got into it and I realized it was a whole lot of work and I didn't really know what I was doing so I hired assistants and um, people to help me over the years to get it organized and it's still in this complete disarray right now but I'm just pulled it back out in the last couple of months to organize it again and get it focused but what did uh, you when you first came up with the idea what did you envision the book to be well that's the whole thing I wasn't quite sure my intention with the interviews was to kind of just find answers about my own stuff through these other women and ask them sort of a line of questions that I was curious about, you know, things that I thought was interesting. Uh, more things about music, obviously, but more personal things. But why do you play guitar? Like, what is it about guitar? And do women play differently than men? And um, how do you raise your kids and go on the road or, or don't? Why don't you have a relationship? Or why do you have a relationship? I was kind of curious about those sort of real life things. So that's been... It's a relationship with people? Yeah, or? a relationship with, with a partner or okay. not. You know, I always found those things interesting because it's such a um, different sort of line of work in general to be a guitar player 
first of all, but to be a, a female guitar player is even more different. There's less of us, and it's. I just thought it was unique because I am one, and I was interested in the pioneers of it. Um, but do you think it's different for women to have a relationship because they're on the road versus men having a relationship because they're on the road? Yeah, big okay. time. <laughs> I really think it's different. Okay. Yeah, it is. And and women on stage is a different than a guy on stage. It's just true. The way people perceive you, the way the world looks at you, the way even you look at yourself, I think is different. But relationships are a lot different. I mean, they're not easy for any road musician. No. We all have, you know, our quirks. But um, women have a different, definitely a different experience. No, no, no better or worse. I wasn't trying to find a hard luck story or or anything or do something that was specifically about feminism or anything any and even the idea of women and guitar it's guitar woman a guitar woman player i mean music in general is about transcending everything anyway so that's a tough road to walk like it's a it's a slippery slope as far as getting into people thinking oh i'm just a player like well, I know. You know, and there's a lot, and yeah. most of the women are like, I'm just a player. I don't, I happen to be female. That being said, they know their experiences are unique because of their female. So mm-hmm. that's what I was trying to follow, you know, follow the thread. Of. Well, even, I mean, we've talked about this in the past about playing blues as a woman. Mm-hmm. And even asking that question at one point or another, I just thought, well, that's, it just doesn't sit well with me. Yeah, you know I mean? it, like it feels like I shouldn't ask that, but at the same time, why not? Yeah, why not? Like, we tend to avoid it now. It's like people are doing this whole gender thing, like it doesn't matter, but it's, no, gender does matter. Gender makes a big, it's a huge difference in the way life works. So in all the interviews that you've done, and I know you did quite a few, mm-hmm. I, I presume that you probably came away with no one answer, and like they, they were all unique answers. Yeah. But did you come up with... My Any own common theme or anything that that made sense to you that um I you know what I got out of it I got out of it that each player wanted to give me something and that's where I am right now is I'm trying to find the thread of what they were trying to give me so now I'm reorganizing my interviews and I kind of figured what I wanted to do with this because I realized that each interviewee wanted to give me something. There was something very specific in their message to me. Like, mm-hmm. I want you to have this. This is what I want you to tell the world, right? And so that's what I'm trying to get at right now. And it isn't very general. It's not like, um, it's not general at all, but it's, it's kind of profound. Did anybody surprise you? A lot of people surprised me. Yes. Um, boy, I, 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 I really like, I, and not to say anything about younger women, but I really like talking to the older women, um, especially, you know, like Etta Baker, who was 95, I think, or 91 when I interviewed her. I mean, just the perspective of a 91-year-old musician. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking to her, it was so different than when you're talking to, you know, somebody who's, I've talked to women who are, young women who are 13. So that scope, yeah, I yeah. found really interesting. But yeah, I think people of age kind of well, they have the very wisdom. interesting to me. Um, and especially now that I'm getting of age, you know, I'm 48 now. So um yeah, I thought that was that's probably where I find the interest. Did you ever think maybe interviewing some men, and not, not as part of this project, but somewhat as, as a learning point or a focal point to this project, just to give you a comparison? I haven't. I did talk to a couple of men just who knew stuff about specific women players. I think Steve James... I did an interview with him about um, Helena Morales, who's a Brazilian guitarist who was, has passed on, so I wasn't able to interview her, but I was fascinated by her. Um, so I talked to him about her because he played with her and he knew her really well. But otherwise, I don't know. 
I just wondered about the perspective. I mean, if you're going after certain things, I don't know if 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 you talk to men guitarists if they would offer something that's just so different that might identify a different point of view. Mm, That could be a good idea. Now I've got to do more interviews. (laughs) (laughs) Did you like that ah, process? No, more work. (laughs) Did you enjoy the process of interviewing people? I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. I think it's fascinating. Yeah. I really do. I think it's really interesting. And uh, like I said, they always always find that they want to give me something. And I feel like they're giving me something. So it feels like an honor as well that they are sharing this with me. So what did you get out of that whole exercise? Or are you still getting out of this exercise? Um, I think the main thing that hit me at first was that I wasn't thinking about myself, which was such a relief in a way. Um, it just felt so like, oh, thank God, I'm just tired of thinking about myself. So all of a sudden I'm thinking about somebody else and I'm thinking about their experiences and I felt like, I just felt like a great weight lifted off of me because I think as artists, creatives, whatever, even as people, we just get so self-consumed. So that was the first thing that really struck me was that I'm outside of myself and that felt so good. Wow, because yeah. I would presume that this is part, part of your art as well though. I mean, you're creating this project and you're the one who's kind of going after the answers. That I, I know what you're saying, you're talking to people, other people, but it's like when I interview other people, I still think it's my project and I oh, want to make yeah. sure it works. You're still involved yeah. and you're, you're definitely guiding the, um, the way it's going. But I don't know, I just didn't feel like, I felt like it was just nice to focus on them, you know? And not so much about me. That's all. That's the first thing that got me. I loved it. <laughs> so and I'll other, do more. The other thing that you do is now you're teaching. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the genesis of that. Like, how did you come? How did you decide that this this is something you wanted to do? Well, um, teaching is very new, mm-hmm. um, and I teach at college level, which is good because I'm not sure I can. Uh, um, subscribe to uh, the high school music programs or anything like that. I don't really like the way they teach music in you know general right. schools. So college is the only level I could do college university. But, but you went back to school to I do this, I did go right? back to school, yeah. So I got I went, my, and with, did you, you went back to school with this in mind or? Yes, yes. Mostly because um, the way the business, you know, I'm not a commercial artist. Um, so I, it's limited sometimes how much, um, you know, financial gain you can get out of this business. So I really, I'd, I hit my 40s and it's kind of like, okay, well, <laughs> what else am I going to do here? Because the writing's on the wall, right? I'm going to stay on the road and I'm going to be like 70, loading my amp in and out of clubs. I don't know if I can do that and making, you know, the money mm-hmm. hasn't gotten better. Like we've seen the business go through a lot of changes, but there's a lot of things that just haven't changed like the income level with in the rate of inflation for right. musicians it just hasn't gone up right I mean people still gig for the same amount that when I first started playing at 16 or right. people are still gigging for a hundred bucks a night or 50 and there's bucks less a night. gigs there's there's every year there's more bands because um, there's always new young people coming out and that's great um, was but, it difficult to I mean I I think that's the reality that most musicians realize, but, but was it difficult to say, okay, now I need to redefine myself, I need to find something else, and to come to the conclusion that I need to go back to school and maybe I will teach music? Yeah, I didn't, I'm not even sure I was that conscious of it, except that I, I've got to do something, and I, it was more like I don't want to go on the road, <laughs> that, you know, I don't want to be broke at 50 right. and be just stuck on the road forever because the road is great but in your 20s and 30s and then all of a sudden you have a kid and kids and going to college and you're like I don't know I gotta do something else Mm so um I was just like I had the opportunity to go back to school here in Toronto at York um I knew Rob Bowman who's in the music program Mm -hmm. and he kind of helped get me in so um and then I thought, well, that would be good. And I was do- working on the book, too. So I thought there's sort of an academic side to what I'm doing on the side, you know, writing a book and doing research. So I thought, well, this could actually work together because I really love research. 
I've been doing it my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like this books thing and the school and if I could teach and another income. So it just so, kind of worked in my head that I thought I could do this. It's still involved with who I am as a musician. I'm not sacrificing anything. And in a way, now that I'm doing it, I got a, I got a job teaching in a college. And then I thought, oh, this is actually really cool because I know a lot of stuff. <laughs> And I actually can give it back to people because I didn't realize how much I know, right? So what what do you get out of it? What do you hope to get out of doing this? Um, and then what do you hope the kids to get out of attending your classes? Well, my um, my specific goal in mind is to, because um, I, because I entered the professional world at 16, um, my goal with my students is to get them ready for a career. And to get them like really in the right headspace to like, what are you doing? So I, I advise a lot of students, even students that I don't officially advise, I advise if they want my advice as far as getting their career started because I know how to do that. I know how to work and they know, need to know how to work because academics and the professional world, there's a gap, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I want to bridge that gap. That's my, that's my intention is to bridge the gap. So these the students who are going are mainly musicians. They're they want to be future musicians right. and working. Okay. And a lot of them in our program are popular music. That's all popular music musicians. I'm not teaching jazz or classical musicians. I'm teaching kids that want to be songwriters and uh, want to go into R and B or wanted to you know go to in the gospel or go into professional singer songwriter you know Americana or country. So we have kids like that. Um, and blues is really important, I think, for them to all learn about the mm-hmm. history of American music. So if they can play some blues, they can get make a deeper sound, you right. know, a, a better sound, an impact. So th- is there actually playing involved in this yeah. course? Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, okay. lots of playing, and uh, lots of you know one-on-one playing. And I run ensembles. Like I've actually run a blues ensemble teaching them how to play blues right yeah is that a difficult thing to do to teach people how to play blues it's hard to do in six weeks <laughs> yeah I had, but well, think of what you three, learned from one months. night with ronnie earl right they're get you know it's hard to teach in in in, in one semester mm-hmm. but it's better than nothing and um i try to teach them about um looking for the roots of everything looking into the roots because a lot of people sit on the surface and they don't know what is sitting underneath. And once you get a handle on what's underneath, stuff on the surface can get really a lot better. It's my opinion. This is what I like about you because we, we cross paths every few years and every time I, I see you, you're working on something new, whether it be the guitar, the women's guitar project or you're doing some singer-songwriting stuff and you constantly not redefining yourself but you're always working on new things it's, and I, I, I always admire that and I think artists the, the fact that they have to look for new things or you know just the next album is going to be a new concept right and and, and now all this you're still playing music you're recording a new album yeah is new ideas always going through your head is this an easy thing to to do or is it a struggle to come up with different ideas it's not a struggle for me. Um, I just, what's a struggle for me is keeping up with them all <laughs> and trying to get them all done. Right. I get a lot of ideas. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty like, I have a really act, I guess my mind, I'm very calm on the external, but my mind is very, very active. Um, so I'm always like, it's always just running and, um, so I try to keep up with it. Like, I'm trying to get the book out. I'm trying to get the teaching done. I got a new album. Like, I'm learning flamenco. <laughs> I'm like, I'm always doing everything. Like, I got I got the cello going. I got a cello at Oh, yeah, home. I heard about that. You know, I'm working on the cello. I'm like, so sometimes it gets a little crazy in there, like, trying to get all these <laughs> things going. So it's not a matter of the ideas. It's a matter of the execution, actually, the oh, organization. I don't know where you're at with the cello, but will the cello appear on the next album? No. Um, if it does, it'll just be like a little bit, but no, it's, it's, that's a long-term baby. That's a long-term. That'll be like something I'm sitting when I'm 70, kind of playing some little bit of stuff. And I'll be happy, you know. What, what inspired the cello? 
Um, I, I saw the cello, actually. My son's, uh, I think his grade eight Christmas concert. Their little kid came out and played solo cello, and I just thought, oh, wow, that sounds so good. It's an amazing it's instrument. It's such a beautiful instrument. And I thought, oh, that sounds so good. And she was just playing Christmas carols solo, and she was like a young girl, so it wasn't like super. So I thought, oh, that's interesting, you know. Um, and the next day we were at the music store, uh, and I, they rented cellos, and I said, I'm taking one home. Let's just rent this thing and see what happens. So I'll just bang away on it <laughs> when I have time. But yeah. it's got, there's so much emotion to that instrument, I think, and it can be very sad and very beautiful. It's unbelievable. It's got a beautiful voice. Mm-hmm. I love the voice of it, and I hope to be able to play blues on it. That's what I'd like to do because I think it would sound really cool because it's, you know, it's got the... The flow and a, a very vocal kind of vibe to it and you can also because there's no frets you can really kind of slide notes and stretch mm-hmm. notes and do things that really are conducive to blues like slide playing and stuff like that that's kind of where i want to go but i'm a few years off still well that's yeah. neat um where are you with the new album can you talk about it or is it still Oh, I've got a bunch of songs recorded that we did here in Toronto, and we did a, a really good three-day session. And then I've written a whole bunch, and that was with John Wynott, Gary Craig, John Diamond on bass, and Galen Pelly did some percussion and played some drums. So, And those things came out really good. And then since we did that in March, I've written a whole bunch of new songs. So I'm still like I'm and trying this is to keep blues? up. Yeah. It's a blues album. Okay. Yeah. Well, welcome back. I mean, it seems like you've been away for a while. Yes. But obviously you've been working on books and studies and whatever. Yeah. Does it feel like that? Is it? Yeah. It felt like I kind of disappeared, and now I'm back. And how has it been received? Really good. Good vibes everywhere. Well, that's really good. good. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking this time. I always enjoy talking to you. Likewise. You're a great interviewer. <laughs> You are, no, you really are. You've just got a great flow. Well, I appreciate talking to somebody like you. This is an interesting story to tell. Thanks, Michael. Thanks. Yeah.